Well, thank you all for giving up your uh, your lunch uh, break. I, I noticed some of you haven't given up your lunch. That's that's good too. But giving up your free time to come out to hear a, a presentation that may be a little surprising to some of you, a little uh, new perspective on view of biblical prophecy. I hope that uh, you'll take to heart the words that uh, Art introduced this presentation with. It's it's crucial that all of us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, show a kind of mutual love and esteem and respect for each other, even when it should turn out that as we approach the Bible, we don't exactly interpret it the same way. We need to keep talking to each other uh, because it isn't satisfactory for us just to say, well, you know, it's different strokes for different folks. You see it your way, I see it mine. Uh, really, Christ is much more uh, glorified by our coming to one mind in these matters. And I think in this area in particular, it's very important for us and I think eventually we will come basically to one mind on these matters. And the reason why it's important in this area is because it affects so practically our uh, Christian influence in the world, our approach to the world, our outlook on what God is doing in the world and where is history going. You heard the title of a very well-known book on biblical prophecy entitled The Late Great Planet Earth. I do not believe this is the late great planet Earth. I think this is the great planet Earth. I think Jesus Christ is the king over this Earth, and I think Jesus Christ is going to make it clear to all, both to his followers and to those who are his enemies, that he is the Lord. God is not intending to turn history over to the devil. God created this world, and that makes God the sovereign. And because God is the sovereign, he's not a loser. God need not lose the battle to Satan. God will not lose the battle to Satan. The difficulty I have with what has become a very popular outlook in evangelical biblical prophecy is that it seems to be so defeatist. And uh, th you see, there's a problem when you become a defeatist with respect to the prospects of God's kingdom on earth. The problem is that that turns into a self-fulfilling prophecy. When you say to yourself, well, God can't really convert the world nations, God really can't turn things around in world affairs then, of course, why should we endeavor to do that ourselves? Why should we throw our lot in with a losing program? Since God can't do it or God doesn't intend to do it, then we're just working against the grain. We're not going to get anywhere if we try to uh, see this great success for the kingdom of God on earth before Christ returns. And so what happens is the kingdom of God doesn't see success because those who are members of the kingdom don't believe it will see success, and therefore they don't exercise themselves towards success in evangelistic efforts or world-transforming efforts. And so that doesn't prove that uh, that interpretation of biblical prophecy is right. It just shows that defeatism turns out to be a self-fulfilling prophecy. Not a biblical prophecy, a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so I don't believe, first, that God is on the losing side. I believe God is going to win the battle in history. And I don't believe that we're going to help our efforts by being unduly pessimistic. Now, if the Bible is pessimistic, then by all means, we must believe what the Bible says. I'm not here to say, well, you know, it's got to be a stiff upper lip no matter what. You know, we've just got to whistle in the dark. Even if it's dark, we're going to feel good about ourselves and we're going to win. No, I'm here to say the Bible doesn't present that picture. The Bible does not present the picture of world history as this being the late great planet Earth. And therefore, there's reason for optimism. 
Now, I have studied these issues for a number of years. That doesn't make me right in what I'm going to say today, but I, I hope that you understand that I'm not coming to this as some kind of one, a novice, or someone who thinks, well, here's some brand new idea. You know, everyone needs to get into this. I mean, these issues have been studied not just by Dr. Bonson, but by other Christian scholars for years and years and years. Throughout the vast history of the church, up until about the 1830s, the church was uniformly optimistic about history uniformly optimistic. Even in the darkest days of the church, there was the belief that God, because of his sovereign might, would break through all of the opposition of the world, and that his gospel would be a light scattering the darkness in this world, and that the kingdom of God would grow and fill the earth. I say uniformly, you'll see this throughout church history, but about 1830, a perspective comes in which, as uh, Art has told you already, would be called pre-tribulation rapturism, uh, holding to a premillennial view of Christ's return, a perspective came into the church which progressively eroded the church's confidence about the history of the world and the kingdom of God on earth. So that by the time we get to the 20th century, it becomes a pretty predominant view, especially as popularized in the Schofield Reference Bible. You know, that's a, that's a very uh, uh, powerful tool for propagandizing. When you take your point of view, your interpretation of the Bible, and publish it on the same page with the inspired Word of God itself, and then sell that to people as the Bible, you see the tendency is for people to read the interpretation and say, well, that must be what it means, and take it with the same authority, with the same implicit faith as they're supposed to take the Word of God. So I want to encourage you today, one, continue taking the Word of God with implicit faith. If God says it, that settles it. You see, and, and, if, and if God teaches something contrary to what Dr. Bonson says, I don't care how much you like Dr. Bonson or respect my scholarship, don't believe me. Believe the Bible. But if the Bible teaches something contrary to Dr. Schofield, I hope you'll have the same attitude. If he has put some things on the page there which are well meant to be sure, not malicious, they're not satanic lies, but if they are errors, they are things we have to watch out for. And I want to suggest that they are erroneous in the most part, and that this approach to biblical prophecy has led to some fairly embarrassing things in the history of 20th century evangelicalism. I'm going to begin this afternoon by asking you this question. Why do you think so many evangelical prophecies about the return of Christ have proven so embarrassingly mistaken? See, you have to be a student of the literature over the last 50 years to realize how often Bible-believing, Christ-glorifying, good Christian people have put into print or have uttered publicly statements about the Bible teaches such and such, and therefore we know that this is going to take place in world history by a certain point, or we know that Christ is going to return. The most recent that I'm aware of, well, and I'm not going to mention any names, my point's not to step on toes this afternoon, but uh, a pastor of a very large local Christian assembly in this area, um, one New Year's Eve, uh, made it clear in his message that Christ would return by 1982. There was no question about it. But you see, it's 1986 and Christ didn't return. This is not an unusual event. In fact, um, I have something of a unique problem. I don't know how many of you would share this with me, but. You see, I do a lot of speaking to Christian groups. I have my own local Christian uh, congregation that I preach to and so forth, but I do speaking around the country, and so 
I rub shoulders with a lot of God's people, and that's good. But I also do a lot of debating, because I'm interested in Christian apologetics and philosophy of religion. My PhD is in philosophy from, from USC, and uh, I have the opportunity to cross out over into the other circle quite often, you know, to be God's representative to the nations, as it were, and off, often to very educated people. Now, they may not be as smart as they think they are, but they certainly are well-read people, and they are clear-thinking people. And quite often, when I'm in those circles, this sort of thing about Bible-believing Christians saying Christ is going to return at such and such a point, the following was going to take place in the geopolitical you know, fortunes of Israel, the temple is going to be rebuilt, whatever it may be, those sorts of statements have proven to be very embarrassing to me. Perhaps they have been to you as well. Uh, you, you might have neighbors, you might have relatives or friends who consider the claims of Christ, but then they read in the newspaper some of these things and they say, well, I don't know, maybe these people really are fanatic. Maybe there's something a little loony about all this. And it becomes um, embarrassing. And so I'm asking, why is it that this has happened so often? Why, do, why is the popular approach to biblical prophecy so often wrong about historical events? And I'm going to offer three answers to that, and then I'm going to suggest that maybe a new approach might take us away from that difficulty and give us uh, a lot more optimistic outlook. First of all, I think that these evangelical prophecies about the return of Christ have proven mistaken because of historical short-sightedness. By historical short-sightedness, I mean a failure to have an understanding of the course of history, and especially the history of the church, to understand that nearly every age, nearly every age in the history of the church has been convinced that it was living in the most wicked of times. Now even saying that, I have to say, my heart still thinks, but boy, I'll tell you, how could you match the wickedness of ours? I mean, I feel that way. I, I'm living through it. I, I see the world all around us and the difficulties of maintaining a Christian testimony in this world. But the problem is, when I read, and I do read a lot of church history and a lot of ancient authors and so forth, they say the same things I'm saying. I mean, the terminology may be different, but the concepts are the same. They think, you know, history has just wound down. I mean, finally the moral fabric is gone. God has no more use for this world. Christ must be returning immediately. Um, I will not stake my reputation as a scholar on this, but I will say that if you will study the issue, I think you'll find virtually every age of the church has had its doomsayers. Those who have said, it's all over. God is done with this world. Christ must be returning very soon, very soon. And of course, there have been those, even as in our own century, who have given dates for it, who have proven wrong. And so nearly every age in the history of the church has been convinced that it's living in the most wicked of times and so Christ must be returning very soon. But those doomsayers have proven wrong over and over and over again. And in the 20th century, I think it's high time that we learned a lesson from that. We should learn not to repeat the short-sighted error of doomsayers. For you see, Christ said that if we expect his immediate return, we are acting in a foolish way. If you've brought your Bibles this afternoon, you'll find Jesus saying that in Matthew 25, verses 1 to 13. We're going to be looking at a number of passages today, so um, perhaps you'll allow me just to summarize this one. It's the well-known story of the foolish and the wise virgins. There are ten virgins. Five of them are foolish. Five of them are wise. These virgins, these are men, by the way. It's an unusual Semitic idiom 
these are the attendants of the groom at a wedding. And in those days, <laughs> you see, weddings were not given in such a way that you say you show up at 3 o'clock on Saturday afternoon at the church, and that's when the wedding is. It didn't happen that way. When everybody finally got everything ready, then the word went out, come to the wedding feast. Well, these ten virgins are waiting for the groom to come and say, it's time to go. Five of them said, we know he's coming immediately. And so they let their lamps burn, and they consume all their oil. The five wise ones say, no, we'll wait until he actually comes, then we'll trim our lamps, and then we'll be prepared. You remember that story? It's interesting. Jesus says, those who expect the bridegroom to show immediately are foolish. You are not to live that way. Jesus goes on to tell another story about a man who went away into a far country and turned over his household to one of the slaves of the house, became the steward of the house. The steward figured, well, my master's going to be gone a long time. <laughs> He's not going to demand a reckoning from me for some time. And so he started to beat the other slaves and live riotously and so forth. And Jesus said, that was foolish too. In both of these parables, Jesus says, your job is to be prepared. Obey and be prepared. That's all. Don't try to calculate how soon or how long. Just be prepared. So it works both ways, but if it works both ways, I want to encourage you to see those who are telling you, expect Christ next week, expect Christ within this year, within this decade, those who are saying that are not speaking with the wisdom of Jesus Christ. They may be well-meaning, they may be our Christian brothers, and I'm not doubting any of that, but I certainly think it is unbiblical to proceed in that way. So the first problem we have with the popular approach to biblical prophecy in our century is its historical short-sightedness. God may have intentions for history that go far beyond our imagination. He obviously has had intentions for history that went beyond the imagination of doomsayers in previous um, periods of church history. Why couldn't it be true of ours too? Now, as a test of your historical short-sightedness or lack thereof, just let me propose something to you and see what kind of response you get emotionally to this. Because I know how I responded the first time I heard it, and it told me a lot more about me than it did about the Bible. Somebody once proposed to me that we are in the infant days of the Christian church. That is, God's just begun to work. Now, what's your first response? You say, no, wait a minute. We're just so accustomed that we just know that, well, maybe we can't say he's going to return by 1982 and embarrass ourselves that way, but certainly this is the end times, right? I mean, Israel's in the land, and all these things are taking place. I mean, this certainly is the end time. Well, but conceivably, God may intend for history to go another 10,000 years. It's conceivable. There's nothing in the Bible that forbids that as a possibility. By the way, there's nothing in the Bible that forbids that even if you're a premillennialist, I think. So just think about yourself. Do you have a short-sighted approach to history and what God intends to do? If so, then that opens the door. It may not cross the threshold, but that opens the door to these mistaken approaches to biblical prophecy. The second problem now, to move on here, we'll be here for a whole seminar if, you, if I'm not careful. The second problem is I'm afraid that many of my Christian brothers have an improper focus upon Israel's geopolitical situation. The reason why they've been misled in the reading of the Bible and its prophetic outlook is because they have improperly focused upon Israel's geopolitical situation. Now, I stress geopolitical. I have no doubt in my mind that God has intentions for Israel. Praise God. 
Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul makes it very clear that he has a great zeal and desire for his brothers after the flesh. And he says God is not going to cast them off forever. And that same Israel that began as the olive tree of faith is going to be grafted back in. The day is coming when all Israel shall be saved, Paul says. We can get into those things later if you'd like, but my point is I'm not saying that God has no intentions for Israel. What I'm saying is those intentions are not geopolitical, they are spiritual. If Israel is going to be included in God's prophetic plan, it's going to be because Israel comes and bows before the Savior Jesus Christ, and not for any other reason. For there's no other way for a person to be acceptable in God's sight and to know success under God's hand but to honor God's Son. If you have any doubt about that, if you think Israel must be blessed just because it's Israel, despite the fact that it rejects the Son of God, then read the second Psalm. Because in Psalm 2, David says, those who will not kiss the Son will perish in the way, and God's wrath will soon be kindled against them. Israel does not have any special place in God's sight apart from bowing before Jesus Christ as the Savior and Lord. I want to tell you three things about Israel and its geopolitical situation and encourage you to look these things up in your Bible as I go along or when you go home, do some study on your own, just to show you that our focus should not be upon Israel's situation. The first is found in Matthew 21:43, where Jesus says in unmistakable terms that the kingdom of God has been taken away from Israel. Matthew 21, 43. Jesus has just finished telling a parable about how a man let out his vineyard to others and when he sent servants to collect his rent on the vineyard to get his portion of the profit from that vineyard, the servants were killed. And then the, the man who owned the vineyard said, well, then I'll send my son. Clearly, they'll honor my son. They wouldn't dare despise my son. He sends his son. They kill the son and say, let's seize the vineyard for our own. And then Jesus asked his audience, what will the man who owns the vineyard do to those wicked husbandmen? And the audience knows the answer. He's going to send in the troops. He's going to clean house. He is going to wipe them out. Jesus said, you're right. And he says, you need to know that the kingdom of God, well, let's read the verse. Verse 40, therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken away from you and shall be given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. For God has been sending his prophets for years to collect his due from these people. And you've killed the prophets and you've despised them and you've rejected their message. And now God has sent his son and you're plotting to kill me. Be very sure God has taken the kingdom of God away from you. You no longer stand in that position of privilege. You no longer have the right to be called the people of God. And God has given this kingdom now to another nation, a nation that produces the fruit of the kingdom, a nation that shows genuine faith and obedience. And so the kingdom of God is no longer Israel's domain. Jesus himself said so. Secondly, you need to know that the New Testament church has become the Israel of God. In Galatians 6, verse 16, the apostle pronounces a benediction upon the Galatian church. Of course, you know the Galatian church is a Christian church. It has uh, Jews and Gentiles in it. It's a mixed congregation. What they have in common is that they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is not speaking to the nation of Israel. He's speaking to a Christian assembly. And this is what he says. And as many as shall walk by this rule, peace be upon them in mercy upon the Israel of God. Paul speaks to the Christian church and he calls the Christian church the Israel of God. In God's sight, you are as Israel 
of old. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, the apostle there does something which would be very surprising to a person that expected the Jews to maintain a special place in God's economy. He quotes two passages from the Old Testament, one particularly from Exodus, the 19th chapter, and he applies these passages to the church. Now, in Exodus 19, Israel is at Mount Sinai. Israel is being constituted as a nation. And there at Mount Sinai, God said, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And now in 1 Peter 2, Peter, speaking to the Christian church, says, but you are an elect race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that ye may show forth the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter says, what was once said of Israel is now said of you. You are the peculiar people of God. You are a holy nation. You are a royal priesthood. In Romans, the second chapter, Paul says very clearly that a Jew is not one who is circumcised externally. Paul says, but a Jew is one who has a circumcised heart. And so in the eyes of God, it is no longer significant whether one is born in a literal sense to Abraham. What is significant is whether one follows in the steps of his father Abraham, the steps of faith. And so in Romans, the fourth chapter, Paul calls Abraham the father of the faithful. In Galatians, the third chapter, if we can turn back to Galatians, Paul tells us that those who are of faith are the seed of Abraham. And look particularly at the very last verse of Galatians 3. And if you are Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Paul says all the promises given to the father of the Jews, all the promises possessed by the Jewish nation, all of those things have become yours. You are heirs of the promise. They now belong to you if you follow in the steps of Abraham's faith. It is not significant whether you are born to a Jewish family. What is significant is whether you, like Abraham, trust in God. And if you do, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. And so we see that the kingdom of God has been taken away from Israel and that the New Testament church is now the new Israel of God. And this brings me thirdly then to the point that all of the Old Testament promises are fulfilled in Christ's spiritual kingdom, not in the nation Israel. All of the Old Testament promises focus on Christ. They do not focus on the nation of Israel. We see that stated explicitly in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20. 2 Corinthians, the first chapter at the 20th verse, Paul says, For how so many be the promises of God, in him they are yes, and through him they are amen to the glory of God through us. Paul says it makes no difference how many promises you talk about. Whatever promises you look at in the Old Testament, they are affirmed and they are confirmed. They are yes and amen in Christ. They are not yes and amen in some rebuilt temple. They are not yes and amen in some land of Palestine somewhere. They are yes and amen in Christ. And I purposely bring up those illustrations of the temple and the land of Palestine because if you study New Testament theology, the authors of the New Testament do not hold back in telling us that everything that was promised about Palestine and everything promised about the temple is fulfilled in Christ and fulfilled in Christ at his first coming. 
For instance, in Galatians 3, Paul tells us that the promise is unto Abraham and to his seed. And Paul says, not unto seeds, as plural, but unto his seed, which is singular, which is one, which is Christ. And so Paul's clearly saying the promise made to Abraham and to his seed is fulfilled in that one single seed, Jesus Christ. But what's fascinating to me is if you look at the quotation in Galatians 3, the only places in Genesis that you'll find God speaking that way have to do with the promised land. Paul says those promised land prophecies are fulfilled in Christ. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter says, you have come to an inheritance by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The word inheritance is the technical word the Jews used for their family plot in the promised land. It was their inheritance. They inherited that land from God. And Peter says, now you have an inheritance by the resurrection of Christ, an inheritance through the Holy Spirit. You have a home in heaven. Indeed, in Hebrews 13th chapter, we read that Abraham himself, excuse me, 11th chapter, get this right, Abraham himself, who was promised this land, looked for a city whose builder and maker was God. Abraham looked far beyond the land of Palestine for the fulfillment of the promise given to him. He looked for the heavenly city. He looked for the kingdom of God. And see, what we learn, and it should be obvious when you think about it, that that little plot of land in Palestine was only part for whole. It was only the token of the larger intention of God. God was just, if you will, giving a microcosm of what he intended to do throughout the world as the macrocosm of his intention or objective. The promised land was just a shadow of the larger reality that was coming. And thus in Romans, the fourth chapter, when Paul speaks of Abraham being an heir, Abraham inheriting the promise from God, Paul seems, if you're trying to be very literalistic about this, seems to slip up. Because Paul says the promise was made to Abraham that he'd be heir of the world. But that isn't what the promise says in the Old Testament. It says he'd be heir of Palestine. But Paul understood that Palestine stood Palestine was just a token for the larger picture, the kingdom of God engulfing the world. And so you see, in Christ is the yes and amen of all those Palestinian promises. How about the rebuilt temple? I mean, the Old Testament, that's one of the crucial um, indications in the Old Testament of God's favor for his people that the temple will be rebuilt. And yet, do we hear the words of Jesus? Isn't Jesus the best interpreter of the Bible? Is there anyone here who wants to say, I can interpret the Bible better than Jesus? Well, read John, the second chapter. Jesus cleanses the Jerusalem temple, and then the Jewish leaders challenge him. By what authority do you do these things? Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up. And they say, wait a minute, 46 years we've been building this temple, and you think you can build it in three days? And then John adds parenthetically, you know, and that, there's a beautiful insight there, too, you know. John didn't understand these things when, when Jesus said them. But now after the resurrection, he does. And so he adds, of course, he was speaking of the temple of his body. That's what Jesus meant. Destroy the temple, and in three days, I will rebuild it. And the rebuilding of the temple takes place at the resurrection. And why is that? Because the temple in the Old Testament stood for what? The presence of God among his people. The temple was not important as an architectural structure. The temple meant God dwelt among his people. And in John 1, verse 14, John says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Actually, the word is tabernacled among us. 
Jesus is the temple because he's the presence of God in our midst. Jesus is the meeting place of God and man. Jesus is where sacrifice is made for the atonement of sins. Jesus is all that the temple stood for. He is the Shekinah glory, after all. And so those Old Testament promises about the rebuilding of the temple are precious promises, but you see they're fulfilled not in some literal architectural way. They're fulfilled in the work of Jesus Christ at his resurrection. Amos spoke of God setting up again the tabernacle of David. And lo and behold, you read Acts, the 15th chapter, and that is quoted, and that is applied to the Gentiles coming into the church. The Gentiles coming into that spiritual kingdom of Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of David's tabernacle being rebuilt. And so let's let the Bible interpret the Bible. Then we won't run into so many of these problems where you know, we say embarrassing things. The Bible interprets the Bible, and if, and if we follow that, we'll see that the kingdom of God's been taken away from Israel. The New Testament church is now the Israel of God and heirs according to the promise. And that all of the Old Testament promises are fulfilled in the spiritual atoning work of Jesus Christ and in his body, the church. Then one more thing gets in the way, I think, of our interpreting the Bible properly, and that's an incorrect timetable about Christ's return. You see, many of us have been taught, again by well-meaning Christian brothers or sisters, that Christ is going to return before the millennium. Christ is going to return and he's going to set up a kingdom on earth. That has always bothered me, now that I've studied the issue out biblically, it bothers me all the more. It's always bothered me, though, that the kingdom Jesus is going to set up is going to be set up by military might. The Prince of Peace is going to come into this world, and the only way he's going to have the victory is by bringing the bazookas and the tanks and the atomic warfare to bear upon his enemies. It, it always made me think, of, but you see, God's more powerful than that. The Spirit of God is greater than he who is in the world. Why should God need bazookas to set up his kingdom? And besides, Paul tells us in, uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. Paul says, God is mighty to throw down everything that's raised up against the knowledge of God, but we don't need swords to do that. Jesus told his church, don't take the sword. All those who take the sword will die by the sword. And yet I'm being told by my Christian brothers, Jesus is going to come someday having failed to accomplish his purposes through the Pentecostal spirit, which is the most mighty power on earth. Just look at the day of Pentecost. Look what the Spirit of God can do. You unleash the Spirit of God, and I'll tell you, nothing's going to stop. You just have to, you know, put that to work. The Spirit of God hasn't been able to do it, so Jesus is going to come do it with guns. That doesn't sound right to me. That doesn't sound like God's method. That doesn't sound like the Prince of Peace. And lo and behold, when you read the Bible, that isn't what God promises to do. In Revelation 20, we read that Jesus returns after the millennium. We have a description of the millennial state in the first six verses of Revelation 20. And then we read of a short outbreak of rebellion when Satan is released at the end of the millennial period. And he'll gather the nations together for war. It's always struck me as a bit strange that my premillennial brothers have these nations warring against Jesus Christ and pinning him up in Jerusalem. How are they going to do that to the Lord of heaven and earth? How is anyone going to be able to put Jesus in that humiliated position? And what are they, what are they going to threaten Jesus' saints with, those who have been resurrected from the dead? 
and threaten them with death. They've already died. Now they're raised from the dead to die no more. I don't understand how you could interpret that in a literal way. That battle is not a literal battle because Jesus won't lose that kind of a battle. But here's the point. I'm going to get down some rabbit trail here and forget where I am. The Bible tells us, and they went up over the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about in the beloved city, and fire came down out of heaven and devoured them. Here's the imagery. There's a millennial period at the end of which Satan for a short period will lead a worldwide rebellion, which I see as a spiritual rebellion, the hearts of people turning cold and, and, and uh, apostasizing from the truth. And then fire will come from heaven and devour the enemies. Well, fire from heaven? I mean, if you're a student of the New Testament, that's not the only time the Bible talks about fire from heaven. What's that referring to? If you want to look in your Bibles at um, 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 and 8. You can also look at 2 Peter 3, but we only have time for this one passage. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 and 8. And you'll hear again about fire from heaven. And to you that are afflicted, rest with us at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with the angels of his power in flaming fire, rendering vengeance to them that know not God and to them that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Paul says, that Jesus at the end of the age is coming in flaming fire to devour the adversaries. Well, that's what John tells us in Revelation 20, but you see what John tells us is that Jesus will come after the millennium and do that. This is the second coming of Christ to set up the great white throne judgment where the sheep and the goats will be separated. All mankind will you know, go into the eternal state, either into the resurrection of life or the resurrection of judgment. And so we have an incorrect biblical timetable about Christ's return if we think that Christ will return prior to the millennium. The Bible says he will return after the millennium. And what is the millennial period? Well, in Revelation 20, verse 5, John says categorically, this is the first resurrection. The first resurrection. We say, well, what's the second resurrection? What's first and second? I mean, what's this all about, John? And then frustratingly, John doesn't tell you. Now, what do you have to make of that? You have to expect that John thought his readers would understand him. But how would they understand him if this wasn't taught somewhere else in the Bible? Lo and behold, it is. In fact, it's taught in John's Gospel, where in the fifth chapter of John's Gospel, Jesus says that at present, the dead are hearing the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear, those who believe, are raised from spiritual death to life. <coughs> and then he says, marvel out at this, because the day is coming when all in the tombs will hear, and then all men will come forth, some to the resurrection of life, and some to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus speaks of two types of resurrection. One that is present, those who hear the preaching of God's word and believe it, who come back from the dead spiritually. They are raised from death to life. And then there's going to be a physical resurrection at the end of the age when all in the tombs will come forth, some to judgment, some to everlasting life. And so John has already told us about two resurrections. And now in Revelation 20, when he's discussing the millennium, he says this is the first resurrection. And so the millennial age is the age of Christ's established kingdom on earth, where the gospel is being preached and people are believing it. People are being raised to life in Ephesians 2. Paul says, you were dead in trespasses and sin, but you have been born again. You have been raised to newness of life in Christ. 
So you see, the Bible teaches us that we don't have to wait for Christ's return to establish his kingdom. He has already done so. I think one of the clearest biblical proofs of that is in Matthew 12, 28. I have half a dozen others in my notes, but I'm going to have to struggle to get done here on time. So Matthew 12, 28 will be enough to make the point. Jesus says in that verse, If I, by the Spirit of God, cast out demons, then is the kingdom of God come upon you. Of course, he has just cast out demons. <laughs> you all know logic, modus ponens, right? If P, then Q. P, therefore Q. Jesus says, now, if I am casting out demons by the finger of God, the kingdom of God is here. If P, then Q. But you see, what has he just done? He's just cast out demons. And so what's Jesus saying? He's saying the kingdom's here. You know it's here because Satan's being defeated. See, this isn't Satan's age. Satan is alive, and Satan is doing some wicked things in this world, but Satan cannot stop the kingdom of God from advancing. He cannot keep the gospel from being believed when it's faithfully preached. Revelation 20 says he's been put in chains that he'll deceive the nations no more. It doesn't say he's been put in chains so that he won't be active in the world. You see, a lot of people ridicule what I'm saying. They say, well, if Satan's in chains, he must be on a very long one, ha, 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 because he's pretty active. Well, no one says he's inactive. What we're saying is, though, that he cannot keep the gospel from being victorious because he can't deceive the nations any longer. Jesus said, if I'm casting out demons, you better know the kingdom of God's here. He doesn't say, it might be someday established with power. He says, I'm establishing it now. In fact, after his resurrection, when he gives the great commission to his church, he says, all power and authority in heaven and on earth is mine. Therefore, disciple the nations. Don't worry about Satan. He's defeated now. He's going to be out there persecuting you. He's going to give you a hard time. He's going to try to discourage you. He's going to make you read books that tell you history is lost. Don't believe it. I'm the resurrected Lord. I have the victory. Now go disciple the nations. And so the reason why so many evangelical prophecies have proven embarrassingly mistaken about the return of Jesus Christ, I think, is one, because of their historical short-sightedness. Two, because of their improper focus upon the geopolitical situation of Israel. And three, because of an incorrect timetable about the return of Jesus Christ. Well, if our brothers are mistaken there, do we have anything better to offer? Well, I don't, but I think the Bible does. If we look at the Bible, I think we have real reason to be optimistic about the future. If you look at the Bible, I'm going to tell you just four things, and we're going to be real quick about it so I can let you go on time. If we look at the Bible, we read that Christ's kingdom is going to increase to world-engulfing scope. Christ's kingdom is going to increase and increase until it engulfs the world. Now, how could I prove that? Well, one of your favorite passages at Christmas season, Isaiah the ninth chapter. Isaiah 9 verse 7, after we read that we're going to have a child born who is mighty God and Prince of Peace and so forth, Isaiah says, and of the increase of, of the government 
and peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from henceforth, even forever. The zeal of Jehovah of hosts will perform this. Of the increase of his government and kingdom, there'll be no end. It's going to grow and grow and grow. And if you have any doubt about it, it says here, the zeal of Jehovah of hosts is going to perform it. I'm telling when God gets zealous to do something, don't get in the way. And in his zeal, God is going to make his son's kingdom grow till it engulfs the earth. In Psalm 2, we read that God has established his king upon his holy hill of Zion. And what does the Son of God say? What does he pray for? God says, ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for your possession. God says, all you have to do is ask and the world is yours. The Bible promises that the kingdom of God will grow and grow and grow. In Daniel, the second chapter, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream about an idol that represented four world empires. And then he saw a stone cut without hands destroy that idol, and then the stone started to grow, and it became a mountain, and then the mountain filled the entire earth. Nebuchadnezzar wanted to know what that meant, and Daniel interpreted it. Daniel said, there are four world empires, Nebuchadnezzar, and then God's going to send his kingdom, and it's going to destroy those world empires, and it's going to grow and fill the earth. And that's what's happening now, because the fourth world empire was Rome. And you know from history it was the Christian church that toppled Rome. I know the barbarians were under the hand of God in bringing his judgment upon Rome, but it was the Christian church, you see, that supplanted Rome. And all of Western history looks now not to the Roman Empire, but to the Christian church for what determined its outcome. And that's going to be the last world empire. It's going to grow until it fills the earth. In Matthew 13, Jesus says, let me tell you a parable about the kingdom. It's like a mustard seed, a little thing. You can hardly see it, it's so small. But you get it into the ground and let it grow, and it's going to become a huge bush. Even the birds of heaven will flock to it. That's what the kingdom is like. It's going to start small, and it's going to grow and grow and grow until it fills the earth. In Revelation, the 19th chapter, we see a vision of Jesus Christ upon a white horse, which is a symbol of victory in just about all ancient <laughs> literature, upon a victorious horse with his church following him, going forth and smiting the nations and being victorious over all opposition. The fascinating thing is that the sword with which he does this is not in his hand. John twice says, and the sword proceeds from his mouth. You see, Jesus is not going to come with bazookas and tanks to conquer the world. He's going to do it with the preaching of the gospel. And Jesus, with that sword of the Spirit, which is sharper than any two-edged sword, is going to smite the nations and conquer them for his kingdom. Indeed, the Bible tells us that the saving knowledge of the Lord is going to flood the earth. Isaiah 11:9. The knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Now, how do the waters cover the sea? A few drops here and a few drops there? Uh-uh. The water covers the sea by inundating it. And that's what the knowledge of the Lord is going to do. In Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah says the day is coming when it's going to be hard for you to find somebody to evangelize, for they'll all know me from the least to the greatest of them, Jeremiah says. In Psalm 72, verse 8, it says that the dominion of God's Son is going to be from the river to the ends of the earth, and all nations will call him blessed, and all of his enemies will lick the dust. Indeed, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that Christ is now conquering every enemy and putting them under his feet. And the last enemy, he says, the last enemy that he will conquer is death. And how will he conquer death? By raising us from the dead. He'll show that death no longer holds us at the resurrection. 
And so, if you follow Paul's timetable, he says Jesus is subduing every enemy, and the last one is death. So by the time of the resurrection, Jesus will have conquered all of his enemies. He's going to put down all opposition. In Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 10, this um, portion of the Old Testament that Paul used in 1 Corinthians 15 is again cited, where we read that Jesus is now at the right hand of God, and every enemy is being put under his feet. And so what is the prospect for this age? If I could sum this up, and I have more I wish I could have told you, the prospect for this age is one of victory. Satan is bound. Jesus is victorious. Jesus has sent the Pentecostal spirit into his church. God intends to give his son the world nations. It's going to grow, his kingdom is going to grow and grow and grow until it engulfs the earth. And the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And all nations will call him blessed. And all nations will be discipled by his people. And all Israel shall be saved and the Gentiles brought in with them according to Revel excuse me, Romans the 11th chapter. To put it very simply, Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, the gates of hell shall not prevail against my church. The gates of hell. You know, we so often think about that in defensive terms. We think like the church is here in this little huddled remnant position and the gates of hell will not get us. They will not prevail. But you see, gates are not used in that way, are they? What Jesus is saying is the gates of hell are going to be broken down by the church. The church is going to go out there victorious, and those who are now those who are under the domain of Satan are going to be brought out from hell. They're no longer going to be looking forward to a history of judgment. They're rather going to have a blessed history in the kingdom of God, and the church will be victorious because the gates of hell cannot prevail against this kind of power. So I want to encourage you as you go back to your work workplaces now, don't let this be forgotten. Go home and study this issue. Don't believe it because I'm enthusiastic for it. Don't believe it because you may like Dr. Bonson. But I hope you will believe it because God says it. And if God says it, that makes it so. The history of this world is not one that's going to go downhill forever. It has its ups and it has its downs. I don't deny that. But if you look at the history of the church from the beginning till today, with all of its ups and downs, it's still an upward course valleys here and there, but over and all, it keeps going up, up, up. And that's the way God's going to continue doing this, because of the increase of his government and his kingdom, there shall be no end. The zeal of Jehovah of hosts will perform it. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would change our hearts and our outlook so that you would change our activities, that you might make us more obedient, that we might be more willing to engage in evangelistic service for you, more willing to work toward the reformation of all areas of life to bring them into submission to your word because we are confident that the victory is yours it does not belong to satan that you will indeed change the world nations you will subdue them to your son that you will grant him to be glorified by all men lord we do pray that you would hasten the day in which the kingdoms of this world are indeed the kingdom of our lord of his christ we pray in his blessed name amen Thank you.